Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hazen. I am your host. Today is Sunday, February 13th. It is Super Bowl Sunday. And as always, I am joined by Luke Boggs. Luke, how are you doing? Go Boggs, right? Yeah, go right. dogs. My mom asked me who I was rooting for in the Super Bowl tonight. And I said, well, I'm rooting for Matt Stafford and my other uh, former UGA Bulldogs, but I don't really care who wins between the Rams and the Bengals. Yeah, I'm, I'm the same way. I, I like Matthew Stafford and think uh, he, he he's earned one. <laughs> but also Joe Burrow is really fun to watch. So I, I'm, I think either way we win because it will be an entertaining game. Hopefully. Yeah. I mean, it's amusing that uh, Detroit loves Matt Stafford so much that they're acting as if the Detroit Lions are in the Super Bowl. Yeah, I mean, so. pretty, pretty much are, but... Yeah. All right, so on today's Peach Pod, we are going to uh, shift our focus back to the Capitol and continue discussions that we've had on a, a couple of issues that I think are kind of defining Georgia politics and defining what's going on in the legislature right now. The first of these is a debate over COVID-19 restrictions. Now that we're in a place where... In much of the country, the case levels from the Omicron variant are beginning to recede and things are beginning to look better. You also see uh, Democratic governors, particularly Democratic governors in the Northeast, where this Omicron wave is is breaking the fastest. You see them beginning to roll back restrictions related to COVID-19, including getting rid of uh, school mask mandates. I mean, if you were paying attention to Georgia politics over the last week, you'll know that the concept of school mask mandates is one that uh, has been incredibly divisive over the last week um, because Stacey Abrams got into this flap about criticism of her being hypocritical for not wearing a mask when she visited students at a uh, at a school in Metro Atlanta um, and then her firing back at her critics and but also her apologizing on CNN for not being a better example. So we're going to talk about where that sits and what that means for Democratic messaging this year. And then we're also going to talk about the continued push in the legislature to restrict the teaching of race. Um, This is a bucket of bills that really started around the concept of critical race theory, but has sort of landed on um, defining what they describe as divisive concepts and then banning the teaching of divisive concepts. Um, So we're going to talk about now that we're starting to see the details on that legislation come together talk about what that potentially means as those bills move forward. So that'll be the big stuff for today. Luke, let's start with this stuff on on masks and where, where Democrats sit on the COVID-19 policies that they have passionately defended as necessary for much of this pandemic. We're in a place now where case numbers are starting to look better. And I think Democrats are eager, maybe even desperate to look forward to a time when life goes back to normal. But that has also brought cries from hypocrisy among Republicans who say that, you know, Republicans have been largely against mask mandates and against really forcing people to comply with COVID restrictions for a lot of this pandemic. And that Democrats are just playing politics now because their their polls don't look as as good as they used to. What is your reaction to sort of how this has all developed in the last couple of weeks? Well, the place I would start is I, I kind of feel like uh, Bill Murray and Groundhog Day because it's a show about uh, COVID and CRT again. And I think the reason why these things keep coming up is that one, Republicans have been really good at 
messaging these issues and Democrats have been very bad at messaging these issues and figuring out how to navigate them. And I, I think the most important thing to take from this is that these issues are not going to go away and having crappy messaging on these issues isn't going to uh, league anyone to victory in on the Democratic side. And the thing that frustrates me so much about this entire situation is that it's very predictable at this point. The Republicans have been very consistent on both of these issues, and so it's not hard to figure out what the hell they're going to say. And I don't understand why Democrats are having such a hard time coming up with a response to it all. Because, I mean, the place I would start is, like, Kyle, where, what what do you think abram should have done with the picture like should like what is the failing in this whole fake uh you know crisis that her campaign had this week because i i have a very clear answer but i'm curious what yours is oh that's a good question um i mean so i'll admit you know i saw this story pop at the end of last sunday and i was it was at the end of a six hour drive for me from coming back to athens from visiting my brother and I just had kind of no patience for the political bullshit when I first saw this story. You know, I thought the the pouncing on her about the mask and, you know, saying, you know, Stacey Abrams wants children to wear masks forever, but, you know, won't comply with her own mandates. I don't, I just like, I was, I was over it as soon as it happened. And, you know, typically when we have this conversation and, and I think in some ways she tried to do this too, is like pivot to a larger issue um, and, and take the opportunity to highlight, you know, someplace where you, you have stood more with education and with students more so than Republicans have. And, and the biggest piece there to hit on that is, is funding, but I, that always happens and it never seems to move the needle. And so I found the whole thing frustrating. And, and my initial response was like, if there was any way for her to just ignore that it ever happened, like that would have been my initial impulse because I didn't actually think it was that important. Uh, but she didn't really have that luxury because I believe it was first the school that she visited tweeted out the photo and then whoever was running social media for her retweeted the photo and basically elevated it. And so then she turned around and gave this really sharp statement, really critical of her, uh, her critics without offering any apology. And then two days later she apologized on CNN. So like it was a little all over the place and to the extent that it would have been possible to just ignore it and not make it a story is my first impulse, but she didn't really have that option. Well, you see, and I think that is the exact wrong thing <laughs> too. That's why, well, that's why I asked you about it because the thing that is amazing to me about it is the fact that it genuinely seems like this was a surprise to the Abrams team that this turn of events would happen, that they did not think about, Oh, you're going to a school with a bunch of masked kids. Should you take a picture with a mask or without a mask? It seems like that they never had that briefing. And the thing I think is so frustrating about this is that we are at a point where it's pretty clear that, Abrams could have had a response very much like uh, some Democrats are getting around to. You know, my, my uh, cause celeb at the moment is Jared Polis, the governor of Colorado, who basically has adopted a, uh, you know, uh, live and let live uh, attitude towards these COVID restrictions. And at this point, you know, not to put words in his mouth, but it's just like the, the way I would phrase it at this point the the science is on the side of if you're vaccinated, 
you're going to be fine probably and if you're not then you're not you're going to be and that's your own choice and if you can't wake up and smell the obvious you know solution to your problems here then it's it's not effective to keep trying to nanny state people at this point because the the political cost of it is incredibly high and the scientific and medical consensus is the benefit you get from that is not that big anymore and that if you're really worried about covid and don't want to die from it be vaccinated wear an n95 mask yourself and you're fine and so if i was the abrams team i would have known that the republicans were going to do the th either way the Republicans would react the same way. They would have criticized her. If she had been in there and had the mask on, they would have been like, well, you got the mask on. You're vaccinated, aren't you? Why do you even need it? If you have it off like she did, they'd say what they said. And what she should have had was a clear response to say, Republicans are playing political games. Here's my policy position. And here are the things we haven't done that we could do. And we'd fix this situation. But she didn't do that. Instead, she had this really biting and snarky response that didn't really talk about her policy position at all and just you know accurately talked about the republicans playing games and then she backtracked it a couple days later and to me that is the absolute worst response because i still don't know where her stance is on any of these issues uh besides you know thinking about it more than brian kemp thinks about it which isn't that hard to do um and it's just it's just frustrating to me because it is so obvious that this is what was going to happen and they just were completely caught off guard uh by it and the only way that I know that for sure is the fact that they had two responses in 72 hours that were polar opposites. Yeah, I mean, I don't agree that the the clear-cut listen to the scientists, the message coming from science is as clear-cut as, as I think you're saying it is. I, I don't think it's as clear-cut as Democrats wish it was at this point, in part because, you know, Democrats have largely messaged their uh, position on COVID as being more responsible, more respectful of scientific expertise, and more sensitive to the inequitable way in which COVID-19 has impacted people in Georgia and across the country. I think you could define their response that way. And I think you've landed in a place now where for a probably a majority of people who are vaccinated um, or who maybe are vaccinated or not, but never took the pandemic all that seriously, there is a large majority of people that I think that are ready to move on. But I think if you are somebody who is truly committed to, you know, the positioning that you've had on, on COVID as a progressive, since this thing started, there are ways in which the pandemic is not impacting people equally. You know, there are children under five who are not eligible for vaccines yet. And so it's possible that, that even though the risk to them, even as unvaccinated, the risk to them is lower than to older people. So, I mean, people. it's, I wouldn't say astronomically lower, but it's, it's another similar, much, much lower than other people. Right. But if, if you're a parent and you have a, a seven-year-old and a four-year-old, your seven-year-old maybe is vaccinated, but you might be concerned about your seven-year-old school giving up mask mandates for the fear that your seven-year-old could bring it home and infect your four-year-old. Like I, 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 I think people are frustrated. They want it to be over. Um, and they, you know, I think desperately are wishing for that situation to be true. And so I think you have sort of a split now between what is the smart thing to do politically and what is the thing to do if you most wholly want to honor 
your commitment to following the science and your commitment to recognizing how inequitably COVID-19 has impacted people. And I, I think that is somewhat what informs this stage of sort of the mishmash of messaging that you're seeing. But I do, you know, I agree that I think moving forward, if we're in a position where the Omicron wave is over and cases sort of stay low in the way that they have during other lulls in this pandemic, that then the message probably should change. And I do think if you are someone who is a, you're, you're eligible for a vaccine, you could have gotten it by now and you're just choosing not to, then you are being reckless with your own health. And I, I think that that's fine to say that. Um, yeah, but I guess the point that I get to is that, you know, again, Abrams did not have any response on the merits for these discussions because. Well, I don't yeah. think she wants to commit early. Right. But because I mean, it, she doesn't have to commit. Early. I mean, it, it, I think the thing that's frustrating and stupid about this, in my opinion, is that if you wanted to, you know, because to, to me, there's only one area right now in the moment that we're speaking with the current data that we have that's a legitimate issue of concern. And that is for children under five, they can't get vaccinated and they're having to weigh the social and, and you know uh, mental development cost of having kids wear masks and the potential for them to die of COVID when they can't get vaccinated. Because at this point, if you are personally worried about not dying of COVID-19, you have very easy solutions of get vaccinated, which is free, and wear a well-fitting you know, N95 mask, and your chances of dying or even getting COVID are so astronomically small that, I mean, it's just, it's the discussion is frustrating to me at that point because it's very, very avoidable. The only population where those benefits aren't felt right now is for kids who can't get vaccinated, but you could be talking about you know, better ventilation in schools, which helps even, uh, you know, not only uh, against COVID-19, but a lot of other diseases and a lot of other developmental issues because clean air is really important to everyone all the time, but especially kids. And, you know, she just doesn't have anything on that. And this trying to play fat, you know, trying to pay, you know, play it sneaky and not commit to anything at this point is just silly because, the only consistent and honest position you can have, and you should adopt this throughout all of your discussions, is you know saying what you think the solution right now is to, but keeping you know it's it's not that hard to say at the you know, but at the end of the day, if circumstances on the ground change, I will change my opinion of what the measures that are necessary for this moment are, and it's just I I just find it so frustrating that Democrats can't adopt that line and instead they're we're just letting republicans beat us over the head making it sound like you know we're out here saying the only way to stop any you know people from dying in car wrecks is to not get in cars anymore you know it's just like we we need to just acknowledge the fact that we've reached a point where the people who are dying and getting hospitalized hospitalized in this have made the decision that that is how they want to live their life, that they want that they, they have made the decision that they would rather risk that than get a shot. And I just don't think the government at this point is responsible for that. And if they want to make that decision, it, it's up to them because having one, just the societal cost of all this anxiety of the government trying to uh, manage every person's life 
when they have offered a f- basically free solution to get out of this problem. It, it, it's just the, the people who have done the right thing need to stop being punished for it. And that, that that's that's the way I'm viewing this at this point. And obviously, one giant caveat to that, which is the burden that unvaccinated people are putting on our healthcare workers is unacceptable to me. And that's the one element of this that makes me hesitate about everything I've just said, because uh, it's not fair to them that they're having to deal with all these people who've made a decision that are, you know, clogging up our hospitals and such. But at least at the moment, luckily that is going down and, you know, we're not having as many hospitalizations or deaths anymore, even among the unvaccinated as compared to Delta. And so it's a hard balancing act, but I don't think that the messaging of that, when you are paying people very good wages to come up with really good communications, you know, strategies on these topics are so hard that they can't get to something that's significantly better than what I just said, you know, if they sit down and have a meeting about it and decide to do it. And the fact that for all intents and purposes and everything we've seen publicly, it doesn't seem like Abrams has a good message on this yet. And that's just very frustrating to me because it's just inexcusable. It's like running in 2004 and not having an opinion on the Iraq war. I think that criticism's a little unfair it, to the extent that she did say, you know, like Democrats have said consistently in her CNN appearance, she said that she would set the right example and wear masks if that was advised by medical experts but she said she would not be hardline over requirements and will heed the advice of scientists as the pandemic dynamic changes. And she has not called for a statewide mask mandate since she has entered this race. This is all according to AJC reporting and, and what Stacy said on CNN. So like I take that she is not being more forthright and more sort of clear about her positioning on this. I, I think you are in a position right now where if, if you're right, if you're rewinding anything in the last two to three weeks, you're still in a position where Omicron cases were pretty high. And so it would be an odd timing thing to come out at that point and say, we don't need any more mass mandates. We need to move on from this thing. We need to, you know, if you're vaccinated, you need to accept that your risk is low. And if you're unvaccinated, it's your own damn fault. Like, you know, saying that during the Omicron peak, I think is a little bit tone deaf. See, I don't think it is. And the the thing that frustrates me so much is that the position that you're advocating for is actually not the position supported by science. Because while yes, people who are vaccinated are getting Omicron, very few of them are getting sick to the point where they need to go to the hospital. And to me, that is the metric that is the most important to me now that we've had, you know, two years to be in COVID land and figure out, you know, how to think about it. Like to me, it's hospitalizations and deaths. Those are the metrics that matter because, you know, if I, if I had COVID right now and I didn't feel bad, like I don't care. And if I had a couple days where I felt really bad, but never to the point where it's like, I think I should go to the hospital. Would that suck? Sure. But it's not going to be to the point of, global calamity because I've had the flu before I've had, you know, a uh, strep throat before and the whole society doesn't need to shut down every time somebody gets a little bit sick or even 
you know, really unpleasantly sick, but not ever to the point of like, I should go to the hospital sick. And so sure, like, yeah, the Omicron numbers were insane and scary, but the hospitalization and death numbers were not, and especially uh, not very high among people who were vaccinated at all. I mean, I, I can't remember the numbers off the top of my head, so I'm not going to say them, but I just remember hearing them recently and they were very, very, very low. And so it's just acting like we're in the peak of Delta where, you know, the hospitals are overflowing and nobody can handle it when that's not the case for people. And, and there's a solution to avoid it if you if you don't want to go to the hospital. It, it just it that seems tone deaf to me, because what you're doing is you're just messaging. You should be afraid and worried and anxious about something that all in all is not going to actually cause you that much problems if you've done the responsible and very easy thing of getting vaccinated. So just to add context here, according to the tracker from the New York Times, the case rate um, for the average between December 19th and 25th, so this is early on in the Omicron surge, you are twice as likely to have a case of COVID if you were unvaccinated relative to those who are vaccinated. In terms of deaths, you were 20 times as likely to die if you were unvaccinated compared to if you were vaccinated. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the other piece of that, though, you know, coming back to how society treats diseases like the flu versus what happened with Omicron and, and what is you know potentially likely to happen with future variants is that the flu, as I understand it, is not as communicable as the Omicron variant was. And so you ended up in a position where when you were trying to operate schools, even though you had mild sickness among vaccinated teachers and staff, there were enough people sick at the same time that it required you to close schools. And like, you don't typically see case rates like that was something like the flu to where it's so disruptive to the operation of a pivotal organization like a school that it forces you to close it down. Now, you know, hopefully we're on the other side of Omicron we don't know what the future holds for future variants. And so I guess one question that I have as we're thinking about these is like, I do think you should be realistic about what the science and the progression of COVID says, and you should be willing to move yourself back and forth on your positioning on restrictions, depending on what the environment is like. But I think what we've seen from the first wave of COVID and the, all of the, the, basically our experience with COVID in the lead up to vaccines being available um, is that you had a lot of restrictions and also a lot of support for people who were enduring restrictions early on in the pandemic. Then things got better and vaccines became widely available and you sort of reinstituted a minor level of restrictions with masks and physical distancing, but we didn't go back to basically paying people to stay home with stimulus checks and things like that. Now you're ratcheting back again to getting rid of things like mask mandates and social distancing. And if we have another variant, what do we snap back to in terms of restrictions at that point? Because I think you're losing public will to comply with these sorts of things. And so like, you know, like a, a truly rational policy would ebb and flow with the flow of the pandemic. But I think you basically lost political will 
to do anything about future variants. And that, you know, maybe that's fine. Um, I mean, well, I, I don't, th I don't think that's fine, <laughs> but I think the thing that makes people lose political will or, or, you know, political capital, I think really in this situation is act, uh, making everyone super anxious all the time about something that if you're doing the responsible thing, you're probably going to be okay. And it's just like, if your tolerance level is zero, then for you know risk then i mean everyone's going to be anxious about covid forever and i just don't think that is a viable solution or frankly just a good one because the mental health costs i am sure there will be excellent studies done in a decade or two about how screwed up we all are uh, in comparison to you know, earlier generations for having the just constant anxiety of covid around for a couple of years and i i think we are at a point where the responsible thing to do, in my opinion, is to ad adapt to the situation and and be willing to admit when things have gotten to the point where you probably don't need to be as worried because you are losing so much credibility, I think, if you're pushing for restrictions and masks and in places where you just don't need them anymore and it's just to me acknowledging the fact that this is not set we're gonna make mistakes we're doing the best we can but we think it's okay to let up a little bit right now and if that changes i'll be the first to let you know i think that's a much better position than being overly conservative and worrying you know what if one person out of the you know millions of people who have been uh vaccinated you know, get COVID and die or because, you know, I let this mask mandate up early. You know, it's like, I just think that is a very great way to piss a bunch of people off, to frustrate them and feel like they're, you know, getting just completely rolled over. And, and, and worse, it makes you seem incompetent because it makes you seem like you don't know what you're talking about. Well, for what it's worth, a Stacey Abrams is currently a private citizen and has no uh, boo, oversight over boo. any of she, these. She's running for office. Well, well, what I'm saying is she has no control over any of these policies. She is not running a school district. She is not running the state. She is not in a policy making role. And I also think that she she basically has that position when she says she'll listen to the science and adjust her policies accordingly but she's missing is, the most important point which is what we should be doing right now I <laughs> like that's 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 the that's the key thing you know it's like uh, what's you know it's like asking what the speed limit is it's like well i look for the sign and then i will know which speed i should go at and without saying what the last speed limit was i don't i mean i i think that like the blow up over the controversy and you know republicans jumping on hypocrisy, I think like became the story there and sort of opens up the door to being frustrated over the messaging. I don't know if but it, I, I think she's responsible for that blow up being effective though, because now they can call her wishy-washy and they can, you know, call her indecisive and they can call her hypocritical because she didn't have a clear answer on what her, um, you know, response should be because my response would have been really simple. It would have been, I'm vaccinated. I'm boosted. I get tested all the time. I don't have COVID and I am unlikely to get COVID from these kids or give them COVID under those circumstances. And so I probably don't need to be wearing a mask. 
And pretty soon the kids under five will be able to get vaccinated. And then a lot of this discussion, I think, becomes moot. Yeah, I think it probably a lot of it probably does become moot. I, I do think, though, that this raises Luke. You know, one of the, I think, tenets that I've noticed of Jared Polis's approach to this is trying to turn down the temperature on this issue, turn down the polarization, turn down the divisiveness. And you saw both impulses from Stacey Abrams' response. You saw a pretty polarized initial response and then a sort of a walk back and an apology. Do you think, given, and we're going to talk about, you know, one of the biggest pushes from Republicans on, um, you know, polarizing issues here in the next segment, but Republicans have like openly embraced a polarizing politics, activating their own base, um, and willing to do so at the expense of um, sort of positioning themselves as the, you know, unifying force in the state. Do you think it would benefit Stacey Abrams' candidacy to, like, try to tamp down on political conflict wherever she can? Yeah, and that was one thing that frustrated me about her initial response is, and, and another part of the lost opportunity, is Abrams has a really good opportunity because the Republicans are going to be so divisive just naturally. And, and even if we weren't in the super nasty environment we're in, whenever someone to the cat, you know, the, a former Senator is running in a primary against the current governor, like there is no instance in which that would not be divisive, even if it's just on personality. And, but this is going to be a particularly ugly race. Like it's going to be really ugly. And that's not even the only primary. There's a couple ugly primaries. The Republicans are going to, it's just going to be messy. It's going to be very messy and it's going to be very nasty. And I think Abrams has a great opportunity that at least so far, it looks like she's going to waste and it frustrates the hell out of me, but she could be out here having not just the hopeful vision, and that's what she's going for. She's trying to push the Obama changey, you know, one Georgia stuff, and that's great. And I, I like that, but she also needs to have fun. And that first response could have been fun. She could have been, you know, a little sarcastic. They could have been, you know, uh, you know, making making fun of them or something in a way just, you know, that would have highlighted her personality in a positive way. Instead, it was just like very peggy Twitter sniping. And I just don't think that is, you know, the way that you get a lot of people feeling good about it because I read it and I, you know, I, I love being sharp and love being biting against people. And so my initial reaction was like, yeah, that's great. You know, show it, <laughs> you know, show it to them. But then I, and I thought about it a little longer. I'm like, ugh, you know, it's like, I don't think that was the right thing to do there. And, and, and that's, probably why she walked it back and so i think not only do you need to be turning the temperature down but you need to be inviting people to join you because you have a hopeful fun you know adventure that we can go on together and making georgia better again and getting past all this division and nastiness that you're going to be seeing over there and i mean that's a hard message to do when things are feeling so rough but you know, giving an opportunity for people to be brought into the change, not just being the change, you know, it's, it's the, the bringing people in part and having, you know, letting them be part of it and get excited about it because of the things they're going to do is a, a important part of it. And I, I, I hope that they find a way to do that because so far I, 
don't feel like they're they're hitting that mark just yet. I mean, how do you do that? Like, Democrats have organized a lot of their message in the last decade around failures of governance by state Republicans. And I think you when when things were a little less polarized, you could sort of argue as these people are just making the wrong choices. Republicans are just making the wrong choices and it's it's harming Georgians. But I think the way our politics has become much more toxic, there's a lot more focus on motive and a lot more focus on why why is it that the state is passing legislation to make it harder to vote? Why is it that the state is considering legislation to restrict teaching race in the classroom? And like Donald Trump did a lot to illustrate the why to Democrats and progressives and Democrats, you know, made big political gains in part by sort of raising the alarm around what Republican governance means and on whose behalf Republicans are governing. And so I think like it's I in some ways I think like I agree it would be I think it would be beneficial to try to embrace a politics that is a little more fun and is a little more open and welcoming um and in some ways, I guess kind of Joe Biden did that in 2020. Um, but I just, I don't know. It, I mean, in particular, Stacey Abrams has organized so much of her political identity about standing up to what she says are Republicans' failures of governance. And, and so much of the voting rights conversation is like tapping into our state's dark history. And so I just like, I don't know, it's hard to come back away from that. It is hard, and I think that is the the fundamental thing that she is potentially going to miss out on is if you focus on that and you pull it off, the rewards would be pretty substantial. And I think the thing that she is missing that a lot of Democrats, especially running in Georgia, have, have missed is the bringing people in on the change you know that you're wanting to bring forth because a lot of it has been i think democrats in georgia the contrast is super clear in democrats minds that man if we expand medicaid we'll do all these great things and we kind of fall into these same traps where we just talk about the solutions because we've already thought about them and we think they're super obvious but most of the voters I mean, aren't. They have been obvious for a decade. I mean, they are. I like, uh, some like, of but, them at least. You know, like you and I follow politics, and most other people don't. And so, you know, you have to meet voters where they are and actually get them across, you know, get them to the conclusions that we have already settled on. And so it's like we don't like Brian Kemp and we think his policies are bad, but like there's a lot of people that like him. And so you have to find ways to discuss these things. And again, I think I think the biggest opportunity is going to come from these super nasty primaries and just, you know, saying the Republican governance has been crazy and chaotic and I will calm things down and I will get some key things done. I mean, that is what Biden, Warnock and Ossoff all ran on and won on in Georgia is 
calming things down and getting things done. And, you know, we're not going to be wasting time on all these high, you know, blood pressure inducing issues. We're going to focus on helping people and getting some, you know, concrete things done. And as we've discussed previously, the Republicans have ceded so much ground to Democrats on the get things done front because, I mean, every time, like Johnny Isaacson or Saxby Chambliss or Nathan Deal were running, I mean, that's what they talked about. Like, they had some legitimate things they wanted to do and promises they intended to keep when they got to Washington and bacon they wanted to bring home on the case of the, our two Republican senators, uh, that, you know, Isaacson and Chambliss, and that's why they did so well. And they were very popular figures for the most part. Um, it's because they were focused on some concrete things that people cared about. And I think that's why Warnock and Ossoff were able to win because their messages were a lot more hopeful as a lot about what we can do together and what we can bring in. And I think just making the contrast, we think we're smarter and better, you know, than the Republicans, it can be condescending. And so you have, and I am someone who is accidentally condescending a lot. So I'm speaking from experience that like, you gotta be really careful, uh, in, in addressing these things. But I, I think the biggest thing that Abrams needs to do, and this is true, I think of her last campaign, but she, it's, it's a lot more, I've been frustrated because I think she learned some of the wrong lessons. She needs to just say what she's for and, you know, know that some people are going to disagree with her on that, but just be really, really straightforward. And because I think if you don't do that, you, one, you lose the ability for people to trust you as easily, because even if people disagree with you, if they know you're always going to shoot straight with them a hundred percent of the time, most voters like that. Really, I'll go so far as say most voters love that because trust is so hard to find in politicians. If someone is basically like, no matter what, I'm going to say what I think, <laughs> see Donald Trump, like that appeals to a lot of people because so many politicians try to be a lot more clever than they are and think the voters aren't going to be paying attention enough and sidestep things that are way too important for people to, to sidestep. And you know, I don't, and that doesn't mean you always have to go out half cocked, you know, be honest. If you're like, I haven't formed a full opinion on that, but I'll get back with you very shortly and then actually do it. You know that? And I, I think that is one thing she really needs to do is to build that trust. Because again, there's so much divisivism and there's so much of, of these accusations of people not doing things for the right reasons and, you know, not, adopting the solutions that we think are obvious. And I just think that being trustworthy and being clear about what you want to do is super important because that'll excite some people. And even the people who are a little frustrated by your position, they'll at least respect you for being clear on it. Yeah. I think the other thing is the issue set. Like there are obviously some of these issues that are at the top of people's minds and, and you've, developed a lot of hard polarization around around COVID, around some education issues. Um, I think there's other issues that are that are less polarized that if you um you know focus more messaging on those as sort of the opportunity to just to state a positive affirmation of what you would do. Um <clears throat> and the one that comes to mind for me for her is is childcare. Like she had a pretty developed childcare proposal in the last uh campaign 
that uh, the the concept of that proposal of capping the share of income a person has to spend on childcare is something that ended up being considered in federal legislation as well. Um, I think coming back to those and, and trying to get away from some of the issues that are, um, you know, so, so polarized and just so visible for people right now, maybe another opportunity there. Let's move on here and, and to a very divisive issue, <laughs> doing the exact opposite of what we just said Stacey yeah, should do. Like, Stacey, if you're listening, you should probably look at what we've done our show on and not talk about any of it. Yeah, that's a good idea. Um, because we can't get away from these, uh, these concepts, these divisive concepts, which is exactly what we're going to talk about now. Um, because the push to legislate against critical race theory seems to have landed in maybe three distinct buckets in this legislative session as things are starting to come together. The first is a group of bill that ban a group of bills that bans the teaching of divisive concepts. And defining what a divisive concept is is, is seems to be a bit of a moving target. But um, we'll talk about the ones that are that are in the bills that are getting considered. And the second bucket seems to be to deal with content that students have access to. Um, so this is what what books and other materials are available in libraries, what can be accessible over the internet in a school or on a school device. Um, so what filters do you use to block content that people consider to be obscene? Um, and then the third that I think is going to become a really significant issue is, is the response to parental frustration with their public schools to be to give students and their parents a voucher for them to leave the public schools and find a school of their own. And, and you have two significant pieces of voucher legislation that, while not directly tied into this discussion over critical race theory and teaching race in the classroom, the backers of these bills who have been putting these bills forward for a while, I think, sense an opportunity there uh, to capitalize on parental frustration and say the ultimate way for a parent to be involved in their education is for them to take their dollars, take them to whatever school they want, and then to provide the ultimate accountability for a school that doesn't listen to parents, and that is to leave the school, take your money, and leave if you feel like you're not being respected enough by your school. Like Luke, let's start with the legislation that seems... Um, well, at least it's it's the most high profile legislation right now, and that is um, this bucket of bills that would define divisive concepts. And the, I think now that we're getting more details, I think it's worth digging into this definition of what divisive concepts is. And so I'm going to read off the list of these concepts. They include teaching that one race is inherently superior to another race, teaching that the United States is fundamentally racist that any individual by virtue of his or her race is inherently racist or oppressive towards individuals of other races, whether consciously or subconsciously, that an individual should be discriminated against or receive adverse treatment solely or partly because of his or her race, that an individual's moral character is determined by his or her race, um, that an individual bears responsibility for the actions committed in the past by other individuals of the same race, that an individual should feel discomfort, guilt, anguish, or any other form of, of uh, psychological distress because of her race, that meritocracy or traits such as hard work 
such as a hard work ethic are racist or were created by individuals of a particular race to oppress individuals of another race or any other form of race scapegoating or race stereotyping. And basically what the bill would do is prohibit teaching all of those divisive concepts and then create an appeals process whereby students, parents of students in that school, employees of the school, or I believe the local district attorney is, is another person who can file a complaint and begin a complaint resolution process that every school board is supposed to create. Luke, that is sort of the framework, the actual sort of like policy outcome that seems likely from this sort of anti-critical race theory push. What do you make of that definition of divisive concepts and how the prohibition of teaching those concepts combined with some sort of complaint resolution process, what we're ultimately going to end up with if one of these bills passes? Well, the one thing I'll say is I'm happy that they limited the complaints process to people who are actually directly connected to the school. I think that's a good good thing. Uh, and that, that's really the only clear-cut thing that I think is good about this because, well, I think we can agree that about 80% of those divisive concepts are like truly actually divisive. And like, I would not want a, you know, middle school teacher telling everyone that whites are superior to blacks. Like that would be bad. Like I don't want anyone to teach, to teach that. Uh, I, and I think the issue with that is that this, again, is this whole policy conversation is chasing a solution to a problem that does not exist. Like I, I don't think there are many teachers in the K through 12 system in the state of Georgia who are teaching any of these concepts to any of their students. Like, do they, am I going to say none? Absolutely not. Cause I'm sure there's somebody out there uh, who's doing it, but I don't think this is a real problem to, you know, for where this is the thing that we're going to spend session fighting over is, you know, having all these meetings and all these hearings and all this crap, you know, focused on this. Uh, I, I, cause I just don't think it's that big of a problem. And I think the real thing we're going to accomplish with this is that even if no school administrator ever gets in trouble because or teacher gets in trouble because of this legislation, because nobody's actually teaching this crap, we're going to have such a deluge of people reporting this, you know, that, that divisive concepts are being taught when it doesn't actually meet the criteria here and or what's you know i'm worried about is and to give this legislation a little credit it does try pretty hard to put in a bunch of exceptions and say like if you're teaching about you know historical racism and you know segregation laws and teaching about the past that's okay i still think there's just going to be a ton of reports where teachers are going to have to go through their lesson plan and say, no, I didn't say that. I put it in this way. You know, it's just like, it's going to be so frustrating for schools and school boards to deal with this. And it's going to make teachers have to be so anxious and on guard when they are teaching things that just frankly have to be taught to have a like well-rounded education. Like you need to know what was going on. Uh, and it, it, with, you know, race relations, 
throughout history in the United States that it's just going to make it so fraught and discourage people, frankly, from pursuing that, um, that, you know, that to be teachers and to make that job just a lot more stressful, uh, because, you know, you could get called up uh, and, and called out for something that was totally appropriate if someone takes it the wrong way or through the game of telephone of a kid, you know, coming home and saying, the, you know, the teacher said this and taking it out of context. I mean, it's just it's just going to be so, so overwhelmingly difficult for um, all of the schools in Georgia and school boards in Georgia to deal with this if this bill passed. I mean, that that is my takeaway, that even if this is a perfectly fine piece of legislation that no one will inappropriately get punished for, it's still going to cause so many headaches because I'm sure there will be just reports of people doing something and having to clear their name afterwards. And yeah. I have some skepticism that it'll even be that bad. Like I, I'm starting to land in a place where on the specifics of the definition of divisive concepts and the appeals process and how those things will be implemented. I'm sort of struggling to see how you would have sort of a long consistent impact on how things are taught in schools, unless you have a particular county board of education or maybe pressure on the state school board to really aggressively uh, enforce this law. Um, you know, because I, th you even some of the things that like, in some ways I think what Republicans want this legislation to be is sort of that old uh, joke about how the Supreme court is supposed to view pornography that like, you know it when you see it, even though if you can't define what critical race theory is, you know it when you see it. And I think they want a standard that like, we know there's critical race theory in our schools if Tucker Carlson says there's critical race theory in our schools. I think that's like the preferred conservative standard. But you can't legislate that. You can't really define that. And so I even have some skepticism that like, most of the things that I would think progressives would want taught about race that conservatives might decry as critical race theory, that any of them actually really substantively meet the definition of anything defined as a divisive concept. And so if you take the, the text of the definition of divisive concepts really literally, certainly you're going to have some parents who file complaints and you're going to start a fairly annoying complaint resolution process in schools. And the, it appears the process is you first file a complaint with the school principal. If the principal doesn't address the complaint adequately, then the complaint can be elevated to the school board. If the school board doesn't address it adequately, then you, you can elevate it again to the state board. And I kind of doubt, unless something is truly egregious, that a principal or a district is going to want to gain a reputation as sort of selling out a teacher and accepting the, the view of a complainant that something that they taught was in violation of the statute. Now maybe the state school board would because the state school board could presumably 
be subject to a lot of state Republican pressure. But I kind of doubt that in most cases, schools or school districts are going to be eager to decide with eager to side with some of these complaints in a way that breeds a lot of distrust between them and the teachers in their classrooms, because it is already difficult to get teachers in the classrooms, to keep them there for, for longer careers, you know, especially without, you know, with the slowness that their pay has increased, like you already have a lot of challenges there. And that's to me, what kind of like makes me skeptical that this bill could, could amount to much of anything absent some really obvious political pressure to make this worse than it appears. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with anything you just said, except the like my point was that even if no teacher ever got criticized for this, one, it will be in the back of their head because I don't care who who you are, like you don't want to get a complaint filed against you, right? Like you're you're it's going to chill the way that you think about these topics and the way you discuss these topics in class if you're worried in the back of your mind that will this potentially get a complaint against me even if it wouldn't get me in trouble and then two the schools are, are there there is no budget in this bill to hire new administrators who are going to be the you know complaint receptionist like it is this is an additional burden that schools will have to deal with that they will have to have a process to listen to these complaints, file through these complaints, think through these complaints, create a process to, you know, deal with them. And they're not going to get extra money to do that. And so it's just, we're asking already resource strapped institutions to have to deal with all of these new complaints, because I think it's great. As I started this discussion on, I think it's great that only the reports from people who are actually at the school uh, can be counted, but like there's going to be people who don't care that that's the rule and they'll make a complaint anyway. And there's going to have to be a human being probably look at that, say, Oh, this is not a parent or a teacher from the, you know, the actual school. So I can disregard this one. Like that takes time and effort and energy to do that. And there are better uses of our educators time than fueling all of these, uh, complaints that they're going to get. And, you know, and maybe I'm underestimating or overestimating how many people are going to do that. And maybe I'm underestimating the benefit of, you know, forcing everyone to have a streamlined <laughs> way to deal with this and some best practices will uh, emerge and, and it, you know, become less of a burden over time. But I just think that after everything schools have been dealing with, this is the last thing they need right now. But um, yeah. I, I agree with you that overall and definitely compared to the bills that popped up in some other states that this is uh, not as bad as those. Well, and I mean, if you get in a position where a school, either like a school administration or a local board of education basically starts scapegoating individual teachers for, uh, you know, drawing these complaints and in teaching divisive concepts that are in violation of this law, if it becomes law, then I think the chilling effect could be pretty broad. Um, I don't know. I, I mean, that's, I think, a question of, of implementation is like, you know, how, how many of these complaints actually draw any sort of real consequences to them? And if ultimately you start to see that almost none of them do, because in part, because I think of the way that they've defined divisive concepts, like most things just wouldn't 
comply. And I, I think in, in most instances, a, a principal at a school could pull up the list of divisive concepts and make a pretty credible claim that almost anything a teacher teaches, if it's not totally egregious, doesn't count as a divisive concept. And just because you're a parent who's upset because there was a, you know, a true and honest discussion of race in a classroom does not by itself make it a divisive concept. And so I think that's, that's sort of the question for the enforcement. Now, I, I, I do want to, you know, I don't want to downplay the alarm that activists who are opposed to this bill has, have raised. I mean, the, the conversation that this whole issue is piggybacking on is kind of a, an indictment of the values of legislators who are really passionate about addressing this issue. And it is feeding into what is seen on, on Tucker Carlson and, and in right wing media in a way that I, I think is damaging. Um, but I think, you know, one of the things that I think is, is a good thing for us to do on this show is a good thing for people to do in general when they look at legislation is to actually really try to think through what the reasonable outcome would be. Because another thing that's been done in this conversation is say, you know, all these bills are aimed at stripping money from schools. And it is true. Some of the bills have provisions in them that would penalize schools some portion of their QBE funding if they uh, were found to be in violation of this law. But I think it's notable that uh, the sponsor of this legislation, Will Wade, who's a Republican state representative, basically said in committee that he was not interested in a financial penalty for schools. And so we'll see if that becomes a provision in the final bill or not. Um, but it it is not something that is priority of the lead sponsor of the bill that is moving the fastest. Luke, I think the other question that this raises, depending on, you know, whether what you think of Republican leadership's view of this bill and of this issue is does sort of the like murky discussion around enforcement, how much of an impact is this going to have? Um, you know, what burdens is it going to place on schools? If you, if you land in a place where you don't have very effective legislation, but it tees up an annoying complaints process and the, the chairman of judiciary non-civil in the house, James Burchett, when he was holding a hearing on a different bill, he openly said that one of the reasons they wanted to limit the complaints process to parents and people directly connected to the school is they did not want to create an avenue for just random people to harass schools and school districts. But if you end up at a place where like you have limited enforcement and the potential to create an appeals process that is very annoying, does that sort of diminish the chances that any bill on this subject actually becomes law? Or do you think that Republicans may be committed to this because of their committed because of their commitment to the concept of fighting critical race theory. Look, there, there are, there's probably lots of buckets that you could put bills into, but there's two big ones that I think about, which is there are policy bills and there are political bills. And this is a political bill that they're trying to put some reasonable policy constraints on. Uh, but ultimately it's a political bill and they're going to do something on critical race theory because if they don't what will they campaign on 
because they have made that the goal of the session is to stop something that isn't happening in Georgia, but still like they need to have their bill that says that they dig it. Um, so I don't know if it's going to be this bill, but one of these bills is going to pass, uh, cause they're going to campaign on something. And so I, I don't think they really care if it's going to make teachers lives miserable because they don't think teachers vote for them anyway. Yeah. That to me is the source of skepticism that anything happens on this is if it's not, well, that's the opposite of <laughs> what I just said. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, I guess I'm, I'm disagreeing with you. I, th- I think, I think the chances are decent that nothing happens or that the place what, what, what's that they your logic for that though, is that this is going to be a largely unenforceable law that, creates an annoying complaints process that is likely to draw negative press. And that if you aren't actually achieving any substantive policy objective, this is not worth the frustration that it's likely to create. Well, that can stop them for the abortion heartbeat bill or the uh, Medicaid waiver. So I don't see why it stops them for this. Well, I, I mean, I sense that because, you know, the speaker said in an interview in the lead up to session that he he was much cooler on addressing critical race theory as sort of a concept versus the more narrow but more concrete banning obscene materials legislation, which is a push from Jan Jones, the speaker pro transition <laughs> um, or the the push that is more substantive from the people who back education vouchers like both of those you could see if you want to take a big political swing you could do the voucher thing um, because that's going to generate a lot of backlash among democrats and progressives and public school advocates and i think it's bad policy but you know if you if you create a widely accessible voucher program that starts that creates an opportunity for a lot of people to take their public school dollars somewhere else. That's a big substantive policy shift. Um, where, and if you do the obscene materials thing, like, you know, that's something that's a little more narrow and looks a little more agreeable than trying to restrict the teaching of race. What do you think of the, the chances of like an obscene materials bill and how that relates to, or is sort of a different path that Republicans could take where they could say they did something on improving parental involvement in schools, but not go after this restricting the teaching of race. Well, I think that bill is almost more fraught than the uh, divisive concepts bill because, you know, one, one man's obscene material is another man's great literary work, (laughs) you know? And I, I think the, the know it when you see it standard is actually harder to ascertain here. Uh, while you know the the court system does definitely have a definition of obscene, just based off of what this bill is defining as obscene, and it, it's just everyone's going to have a different opinion on it. Because uh, when I was growing up, I know there was plenty of people that thought Harry Potter was a great book for kids, and then I knew other people that uh, thought it was you know a gateway to devil worship. So. Like, you don't want to have that fight, especially over a word like obscene. And I, I I just think the chances of there actually being a lot of books and websites that students are looking at in school libraries that meet an actual definition of obscene is pretty low. Um, and... Well, let me read off the... So the, this is... 
Senate Bill 226. And I believe this is the main obscene materials bill. There's also a second bill that deals with internet filters. And I, it, for a lot of these things, it's always hard to sort of divide these up. Like there's going to be some basket of policies that ends up in a bill that gets passed if they want it to pass. But this is the, the standard that they're trying to outline in Senate Bill 226 is, so they're, they're trying to create a standard of content that is harmful to minors, which means uh, the content that the quality or description or representation in whatever form of nudity, sexual content, sexual excitement, sadomasochistic abuse, uh, when it is taken as a whole or predominantly appeals to the purient, shameful, or morbid interest of minors is patently offensive to prevailing standards in the adult community as a whole with respect as with respect to what is suitable for minors and is take and is when taken as a whole is lacking in serious literary, artistic, political, or scientific value for minors. So that content that fits under that description is what this bill is seeking to address. Which is shorthanded in the press as obscene content. Yeah, and the problem with that is none of that has a solid definition. Now, again, there are some things that are very obviously beyond the pale. I think, and I, you know, there are definitely some easy calls <laughs> that that legislation would uh, help throw out. But again, I just don't think any of that stuff is actually in a school somewhere. <laughs> or if it is, it's because like you know someone like dropped it out of a box and it's been there for fifty years and they just forgot to get rid of it. Um, it's just yeah, I just I just think it's so stupid as well because. I just, I just feel like this is one of those things that if somebody called up the school right now and said, hey, you have you know a smut novel in your library, they just get rid of it. It's like you don't need to create this whole new process for, for it. And yeah, I just, it's so hard to understand how either of these bills will actually be implemented. And I, I think that is one of the things that the Republicans have done here a bit purposely is they are trying to make it look like they have done something without having the responsibility of being called out on any of the bad things that happen. Because if these bills pass, inevitably what will happen is there will be some fake controversy where somebody gets fired who shouldn't get fired or, you know, a whole, you know, group of people just, freak out about something they shouldn't be freaking out about and they will have you know the people who use this process to go after someone will have the ability to say well they passed this bill so they obviously want us to use it and then the legislators will be like well i didn't want that to happen i didn't think the bill should stop that from you know book from being read and it's just it's frustrating because i it's just so inevitable i mean that to me lends to the skepticism that any of this stuff passes that like why would you drum up Kyle, a controversy? Kyle, have you seen Republicans in Georgia care about the consequences of their political bills? Well, I just, why would you drum up controversy that ties back to a bill you passed when you can shit on Joe Biden about inflation and reckless spending? Because they've decided that aggressively going after critical race theory, which is just a dog whistle, is the way they're going to win the suburbs back. And so if you have an opportunity to pass a bill 
I think they passed something. Is it this bill? Is it the other bill? Is it, you know, one we didn't talk about or some amalgamation of these bills? I don't know. But I will, I will, you know, put a flag down and then you can tell me I'm wrong. But I really think they will pass something on this because you cannot, you know, have a five alarm fire uh, of an issue nationally and then do nothing about it. If you hadn't, you know, because again, Kemp campaigned or not campaigned, but he announced that he thought they should do something on CRT. He wasn't very specific about it, but he was like, we need to look at it and pass something. And so I, I think something gets passed. It's just unclear to me exactly what thing gets passed. Well, and for what it's worth, these two bills, the obscene materials bill and the divisive concepts bills together create a new appeals process. Um, there's a third bill and I know it's, especially in podcast form, it's hard to keep up with these, but there's a third bill that's shorthanded as the parents bill of rights bill. And it also is focused on process, but it codifies into law processes that already exist in the, uh, rules and regulations that govern local boards of education. And it is a, the Parents Bill of Rights Bill is also, I think, organized around parental access to materials and things going on in the classroom um, that they can already ask for and that most districts have some sort of process for dealing with already, but that Republicans say should be enshrined into state law so that those can be easily changed as opposed to being rules and regulations. And so I don't know, maybe that's the one that you land on because at a minimum, you're just reaffirming a process that already exists. All right. So we will uh, be keeping an eye on how this legislation moves. Maybe at some point we'll have an honestly more concrete idea about what's actually going to move. I think that's where I land at the end of this show of like, I don't know, it's just hard to tell what what is uh, fact and what is fiction in terms of what may actually be going into the official code of Georgia when this legislative session ends. But we'll be here to keep an eye on it. We'll be here to talk about the things that Stacey Abrams should never talk about again. For now, we're going to let you go. Luke, thank you as always for joining the podcast. Always happy to be here, and hopefully it won't be Groundhog Day again. All righty. We'll talk to you later. Go Matt Stafford. <laughs> go Matt Stafford. Thanks for tuning into Peach Pod. If you liked what you heard, subscribe to Peach Pod on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back with another episode next week. Until then, take care, y'all.